goes to her boss and she tells her, I've just realized we're doing this project and I want to do a DPIA. I want to make sure it's privacy friendly. And when she looks at her boss, um, she just turns pale and goes, hey, I, I don't think you need to do a DPIA. Everybody is using a candidate partner. If you insist on doing a DPIA, I just want you to make absolutely sure that it shows that we are compliant, that we can go ahead with this. This project has cost us a lot of money already. Welcome to Sustainable Compliance by Wired Relations, a show dedicated to privacy and information security. I'm your host, Benjamin, and with me, as always, we have our privacy evangelist, Jakob Hurt-Larsen. So, Jakob, over the years, I know you've gotten a lot of questions about the peers and heard stories from privacy professionals. So I thought this would be a good time to delve into the peers. Before we get started, just let me uh, read what it says on GDPR.eu. A data protection impact assessment, the PIA, is required under the GDPR anytime you begin a new project that is likely to involve a high risk other people's personal information. But from my understanding, the peers are often made on the back foot of a project. Jakob, is that right? Or could you paint me a picture of this typical the peer situation? Yeah, sure. And thanks for reading from the internet. It sounds easy, doesn't it? It sounds so easy. <laughs> yeah, the DPIA is something that a lot of data protection compliance professionals have an issue with. I just want to lead with with a story that I think a lot of us can relate to. I'll, I'll tell a story about, let's call her Jennifer, and let, let's put her in uh, an educational institution, you know, complete with, with a lot of students, a lot of teachers, both freelance teachers and full-time staff. And let's make it Tuesday morning, just for the fun of it. So, so Jennifer is coming in. Um, she's had a lot of uh, data subject requests lately because the students from the, the institution she's in, they're becoming more and more worried about the privacy and what this institution does with their information. So, so what she, so she has planned just this nice plan for the day um, that she's going to dive into this and really get a hold of it and maybe make some sort of template and some sort of process so that, that they can they can work with these um, DSRs. But like most privacy pros, before you do your to-do list, you go for coffee, right? Right. I've heard that. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so she goes for, uh, for, for the coffee uh, machine and meets uh, Brian. And, and Brian says... Hey Jennifer, are you coming for the um, for the drinks on Thursday? And and Jennifer says, drinks Thursday? Um, yeah, we're we're celebrating this um, the implementation of this um, of this new uh, system, candidate partner. It's got AI and it it's just a magnificent system that can that pulls from all sorts of places and and does crazy things profiling our teachers and 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 we maybe we can do something with our students as well and then Brian walks off to uh whatever he's doing and I think a lot of our listeners can appreciate this situation they might not have been in the exact same one but 
now Jennifer has this sort of sinking feeling. She's, um, she can feel it in her stomach that something is off. And, and when she goes back to her office, she decides, okay, I, I, I have to look into this. And she looks for information. She talks to a few people this, that morning, instead of doing her DSRs, by the way. Um, she looks into it and she figures out this is really murky. It's a system that sort of pulls a lot of data from different places and it's not quite sure. Nobody is really sure about what the AI part of it does. And then something comes up and she's just really worried about this, but she sees it as an opportunity to do a data protection impact assessment and, and really do some good work with, maybe we can put in more privacy into the system. Maybe we can, we can look into some stuff. She, she thinks that, and she, she's really looking forward to doing this, uh, to Pia and working with, um, with this in interesting project, because it is an interesting project from a, from a compliance perspective, right? Um, and then she goes to her, uh, she goes to her boss just to, to make sure that everything is, is, uh, is right. And she tells her, okay, I've, I've just realized we're doing this project and I want to do a DPIA. I want to dive into it. I want to make sure it's, it's privacy friendly. And when she looks at her boss, um, she just turns pale and goes, Hey, I don't think you need to do it appear. Everybody is using a candidate partner. You don't want to do this, but, but Jennifer, she kind of sticks, sticks to her guns, right. And says, I, I need to do it. it. It's, it's in the law. I, I have to have to do this. And, and, um, and then I think a lot of privacy professionals have heard a sentence a bit like this because the, the boss says, okay, Jennifer, if you insist on doing it, Pia, I just want you to make absolutely sure that it shows that we are compliant, that we can go ahead with this. This project has cost us a lot of money already. Jakob, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but this sounds like a, a, a really painful situation uh, to be in and, and not, not kind of like it, it's supposed to work. But what does this mean? Honestly, I, I think a lot of uh, privacy professionals have had situations like this, really, to be honest. Um, and the problem here is that it means that instead of doing good data protection, instead of using, Jennifer is using her skills as a data protection compliance professional. She's using them not to do great data protection, not to make things privacy friendly, not to reach the goals of the organization in a good and ethical way. She's basically being asked to use her skills to justify decisions that have already been made in the business. So she's basically being asked to make a legal document that justifies what we are already going to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think it does. But I'm just also thinking, so what are the consequences of, the, of that situation? Well, there are more consequences. For Jennifer, if we start there, for Jennifer, the consequence is that she is not doing the job that she was going to work to do. 
most privacy professionals anyway, that I've talked to, they really want to do a good job within their organization. They want to be able to help their organization reach their goals in a privacy-friendly way where data is protected and safe and treated in the right way. That's one thing that happens. And that's the thing for Jennifer. Um, and the other one is for the organization. For the organization, the consequence is that they are probably putting pressure on Jennifer to justify this. But if they had done it in a different way, if the process had been different, they might have had a system that could do the same things that they could use to reach their goals, but it would be it would be compliant and it would be ethical and it would be privacy friendly. So a consequence to the organization is that they get poorer data protection. So Jennifer is, is sad because she's not doing her job well and the organization doesn't get the data protection that they could have had. That makes sense uh, to me. And I, and I know you've also been talking about this situation, like a form of a silo that she's in. Could you explain a bit more about this siloed situation here? When this happens to compliance professionals, it's really because we have organized in a, in a wrong way. It's basically because when the GDPR came into force back in 2018, we were all focused on regulatory compliance. We were all focused very much on ticking boxes and making sure that everything was legal. And so in a lot of places like probably Jennifer's um, educational institution, a, a centralized compliance function was set up with very, very knowledgeable people, people who really knew about the GDPR, about privacy, in some instances also about information security, but very often about privacy and, and the, the regulatory um, side of things. But it also meant that we became isolated very much from the organization. So, so the, the way the organization viewed us as compliance functions was that whenever we are done with something, whenever we have made sure that this is the system that we want, this is the process that we want to do, we should run it by privacy. So privacy became an, a, sort of a, a function that was, that was taking cases. So, so when, when, when marketing or HR was implementing a new system, they were sort of implementing it. And then they asked um, compliance, can we do this? Is this a legal way to, um, to do it? So we became very much a yes-no function that was looking at individual cases. And that means that if we say no, somebody else in the organization will be worse off. And I don't think that's the right way to, to set up an organization because what we really need is for privacy to be embedded in the processes that lead up to the system. So in many ways, we would be able to do this. But we just organized wrong. And then the mindset of a lot of us was it's all 
about the law, and it's all about answering questions about whether or not something is legal or not. When you speak about it like this, and with the first sentence we read from the internet, <laughs> and it says about the, well, the DPIA uh, that it should really be in the start of a project. So it, it seems like something has also been misunderstood in, in some way about this uh, compliance function uh, in, in the way it's been implemented. I've understood that clearly this siloed situation has some drawbacks and some adverse consequences, but what is the solution then? Well, the, the solution is to go from a centralized authority to more sort of company-wide collaboration. That's the super short answer. And just to roll it back just a little bit, because it makes a whole lot of sense. Let's take Jennifer's uh, situation. Somebody in uh, HR is looking into a system. There is somebody, let, let's say that it was Brian. Brian is looking into this candidate partner system. Uh, he knows a lot about HR and what HR wants from this. So that's his perspective. It's his knowledge. He has domain knowledge when it comes to HR. And he just sees all these amazing things that this thingy can do. Jennifer, on the other hand, she knows about something else. She doesn't necessarily know about HR and what they're doing, but she knows very much about privacy, how things should look to be privacy friendly, what a system should be able to do to be privacy friendly. This is the case every time we talk about a new system or a new process in an organization. There is somebody who knows about privacy and there's somebody who knows about the domain of the system. There's somebody from the business who knows about it. And that knowledge needs to be combined. And that's why mm. I talk about company-wide collaboration. So what should have happened <laughs> in this case is that Brian, when looking into the system, knows enough about privacy that a bell goes off in his head. When he, when he starts looking into the system, he should have thought, I need to have a cup of coffee with Jennifer just to make sure that, that this is not going off the rails. So, so he should have sent an email. Th this is really what compliance wants from the organization, that they send an email going, I have this idea. Do you see any implications? Let's have coffee. That's right. basically what we want from the organization. And then Jennifer should have been involved. She should have been on the sideline helping Brian go through the process in a way that would not only satisfy the needs of HR, but would also satisfy the needs of compliance and privacy. I like that idea. And also thinking about how would this meeting look like ideally so you're talking about maybe a cup of coffee and as a privacy professional consult on these are some some red flags that you should consider but are, are there other ways to get involved in this uh, process as well I, th I think getting involved is the first step but from going back to the DPIA really a DPIA is just looking into the consequences for the data subjects, for those whose information we 
process. And we have to do that every time we do something with other people's information anyway. It doesn't necessarily have to be a full DPA every time, but we have to look into what are the consequences for the people whose information we are processing. That's just due diligence from a business perspective. And the DPA framework is actually a good framework for that. It has a lot of questions. It has a lot of things that you need to look into. You need to look into what is actually happening to this data. Maybe you should ask the data subjects, the people whose information we are processing, what do they think about it? There's a lot of questions in a DPA framework that you need to answer. And even if you don't have to do a full DPA at the end, some of these questions are great to answer. So, so basically, I think that when Jennifer is inserted into the process, it's basically about having her ask these DPIA questions of the project team. So constantly asking these questions, having them uh, involved. And I don't think it has to be meetings and coffee all the time. It, it could also be just having in a system the DPIA framework and then every once in a while asking some of these questions, asking Brian to assess one or two of the privacy issues so that they work together to make sure that instead of having to say definite no at the end, if Jennifer was to do that, they can adjust along the way so that everybody is happy about the outcome. So it's basically having the DPA framework put into the, to the process of choosing the system. I see the idea and also that there's so much uh, gold in the DPIA already. And if you use this to guide the conversation, maybe you also get a better solution in, in the end. Mm -hmm. What are the benefits of working collaboratively like this as you see it? I think the most important benefit is the fact that you can make small adjustments along the way. So if something is way off on a privacy scale that this is really a no-go, you can steer away from it. So you can make adjustments along the way that will put you in a better place, both for reaching the HR goals in this case and the privacy goals. By working together, you get input to your risk assessment and your DPIA from the people who actually know about this. I was talking about domain knowledge, Brian having HR knowledge and Jennifer having privacy knowledge. We need that domain knowledge from HR and we can get that in by working together. So when Jennifer realizes I have to do a DPIA, it's really an uphill battle because now she has to go get all that information. She could get that along the way as the project runs. One more important thing is that you train other people in privacy. We do a lot of awareness programs where people will do e-learning and stuff. But the best way to learn privacy is to reflect on it. So when Jennifer works with Brian to do this risk assessment and this DPIA, Brian has to reflect on privacy issues and that trains him to think about it in the future. It also installs the data protection and privacy into the goal of the project. So if you start there, it becomes part of the goal. So those are some of the big benefits that you can steer the project and you 
at the same time, you train others in the organizations to think about privacy when they do stuff. It seems like this was what the law intended from the first place. And, and, and by having it siloed, it, it's, it's not working its way into the organization and becoming embedded. And the opposite, where you have this company-wide collaboration, seems so sustainable in the long run. Mm. I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious, because I am at least, how do we get there? What do we do if we're Jennifer? I think there's at least two things that need to be in place. Or three, maybe. First of all, it's about getting buy-in to privacy within your organization. And that's a huge project. And the thing is that when you go from what we call from regulatory compliance to what we call sustainable compliance, you need a different skill set. Regulatory compliance, you need to know all about the law, but with Sustainable compliance, you need to be able to uh, build a culture, you need to be able to communicate, you need to be able to do change management because you really need the fact that Brian, he has to be aware and buy into the fact that privacy and data protection is important. So that's the first step to it. Compliance needs a new brand within their organization. They need to be branded as somebody who can come in and help whenever we do new processes and, and acquire new systems. They need to be branded in such a way that this becomes important. So that's the first task. And I know it sounds like a w some words that you just say, but it's a big challenge for many. So that's the first thing. Get buy-in from everybody within your organization. The second one is you need a good framework because you need to be able to work with others. And if everything is just up in the air and pretty difficult, as an expert, you can think about things without having a, a framework. But if you, if you have to involve a Brian, you need to be able to ask him fairly specific questions and he needs to be able to answer fairly specific questions. Otherwise, if, if you just ask him, so your new system, is it, is it uh, privacy compliant? He'll go. I have no idea. You need a framework, like a DPA framework and a risk framework and so on and so forth. I think those are the two things that you need. You need to get buy-in from people and you need to have a, a, a framework so that others can work with you in a way that doesn't become too difficult for them. All right. I, I do know that you have a lot of experience actually working with buy-in and stakeholder management and yeah. from your previous lives and also <laughs> now and i know for a fact that you have done some work on on this cheat sheet yeah could, that's could you just give a little sneak peek on what that is and where we could find it yeah that's right i think we can link to them in the show notes i've done a a, a cheat sheet I, I call it um seven steps to management buy-in but it's not necessarily just for just for management. I, I think most privacy people aren't in privacy because they want to be communicators and publicists, but we need to be able to communicate with people. So what I've basically made is a, is a seven step plan to making what I'd call a communications plan. So you want to achieve something and then you go through some steps and hopefully, hopefully you'll get uh, buy-in. I think it's something we need to 
work on all the time. And, and really, the most important step is actually knowing what you really want. What we really want to achieve here is that everybody in our organization, or at least the people who are involved in developing stuff and acquiring systems, what we really want them is to have a bell go off and reach out to us. We want them to know enough about privacy, and especially we want them to know enough about us. We, we want Brian to know Jennifer well enough that he is comfortable sending her an email going, I'm looking into this. I want your input on it. Let's get together because that really is the start of it. Thank you so much, uh, Jakob. And yeah, we'll leave the cheat sheet in the notes so uh, we, we can all have a chance to take a look. We do work for Wired Relations, the two of us. And, and of course, we do uh, make software, compliance software, information yep. security software. So I've invited uh, our head of product in the studio today to shed some light on how collaboration can be built into a, a compliance framework. So welcome, Karen. Thank you. Could you um, give us a little intro about um, how Wired Relations works. Yes. Well, Wired Relations was uh, really designed and built for collaboration. We could see that compliance is really an organizational task that needed to be challenged on an organizational level. So more people needed to be involved early in the process. The way that the system is structured is actually, we have a user management system where it's easy to invite uh, the organization, give them different roles so they can contribute to the work. You could give them like a limited exit role so people only see what they need to be in charge of and fill in. So they can invite IT, for example, and they can map all the systems that the, that they're using and they can get the information from there. They can give tasks to the rest of the organization to fill in the gaps that they see as they start working. You invite the right people early on. And there's no limit in how many users can use the work relations because we really believe that it is something that works best when you collaborate. Right. And I think this also ties very well into what Jakob just mentioned about also bringing in the organization early in the process to be able to collaborate. Let's say we need to do it a PM. How does this show? You need to do it a PM when you know there's a high risk involved for the individuals, the one that you're processing data on. And what we would suggest is actually start going through the PM module and go through the seven simple steps and actually see what what kind of information is being processed and then is there some risk that you need to mitigate, something that you should be aware of before you actually start doing a processing activity. What's the best example of collaboration you've seen? How does that? I can mention both the best and, and the situations where it, but people are not getting the fullest out of the system. So as I've mentioned before, it's really built to collaborate. So the best scenarios is where you actually invite the organization in early on. And it's where you have IT, marketing, and the legal departments working together, collaborating in the platform. And you actually have your users educated to know that someone finds out, oh, I need to use this new shiny system. And that they actually know already, oh, I need to get an assessment of this system. So actually involved compliance manager early on, and they can use our tool for that. So actually when 
privacy managers, uh, they start inviting more people into the system. Uh, that's when we see success and compliance manager gets a good overview from, from all that when they go to the dashboard and they can see the yearly tasks that are there and they can see who's doing what and they can see their own tasks. And that's when we see that people are getting the most of the system when they invite in more people. When they don't get that much out of our system, it's, it's when there's one person sitting and then doing the whole job, mapping all the systems, doing all the vendor audits, doing all the processing activities and the risk assessment. And they're still collecting and gathering information from the organization um, through emails or they are hearing it at lunch that something is going on. And they're keeping uh, the product close to themselves and then just working on it alone and not collaborating. They're not getting the most of the tool and they're not really being supported. Because Riot Relations was really built to help uh, compliance managers be involved earlier so they don't always get the information when everything has been and when the processes have been started and when there has been there's something that you, they just need to fit in because we've already started doing this. That's our mission and that's what we hope people will do. Invite more people in. Collaborate. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainable Compliance. Hit the subscribe button if you want to hear more.